The reality as we approach this text today is that we live in a world that is filled with and struggles with and maybe even live in a church that is, uh, by which I mean larger than just Trinity, that is filled with a struggle with anxiety. Jesus opens this section we're looking at today by telling us, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. The word here is not a word that would generally describe fear, but a word that would describe anxiety. And we live in a world where this is an increasing problem, and we see that over the last couple of years, that problem has only been multiplied. I did a little homework, and I found a report from the CDC that said from August of 2020 to February of 2021, anxiety rates, now not the percentage of people that have anxiety, just the rates of anxiety of people in the U.S. increased some 36 to 41%. A survey done in 2020 revealed that 62% of respondents had some form of anxiety. I mean, 62% of people report to having some kind of crippling fear that affects their lives. And I think that as, uh, as people today, we are doing some things to contribute to this problem. We're compounding the problem in some ways in our lives, and we'll, uh, we'll, we may address that later today. But su- suffice it to say that anxiety in our world is a problem. In fact, it's a big problem. However, it is not a new problem. Because here's Jesus, 2,000 years ago, addressing the same problem. And I know that what I'm about to say might be hard for some to hear. And, And I don't want to reduce it to only this thing. But I think what Jesus is teaching us, what what he seems to indicate here, is that one of the problems for anxiety is a spiritual problem. That that I I don't want to discount the fact that there may be some biological or physiological problems uh, that might contribute to anxiety. However, I do think that no pill, no, no medication is going to make up for spiritual problems. And I think Jesus is indicating to us here that that there is, at least in part, a spiritual component to our anxiety. And I think what Jesus gives us here in this text is four reasons, four spiritual reasons, in fact, for anxiety. And so I want to look at those four reasons today, and we're going to move pretty quickly to save time for this video I want to show you, and then uh, we'll come back to applying some of this. So I think we got a a slide up there that uh, that says four reasons for anxiety. There we go. All right, let's look at reason number one. Reason number one. Anxiety results from forgetting that God is sovereign. In fact, all four of these we're going to look at... uh, uh, Well, not all four, but at least the first two. Let me see here. Yeah, first two uh, have to do with what we forget. Now, uh, in order to understand this point, we have to understand that what Jesus opens with here is the word, therefore. Uh, If we rewind back to verse 24, we see that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or you cannot serve God 
and mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You cannot serve the God who is sovereign and anything else. You can serve other things as part of serving God. You can lead and love your family as part of serving God. You can go to work as as part of serving God. You can interact in the church. You can recreate as part of serving God. But if you live for those things, if you live for your family, if you live for work, if you live for play, and if you place the burden on those things of, of giving you meaning for your life, which is an unfair burden, spouses... Don't burden your spouse with with the idolatry that says it's their responsibility to make you happy. Parents, don't burden your children with, with the message that it is their responsibility to make you happy. Don't, don't put that burden on your coworkers. We can do those things as a service to God. But those things can't be our God's. They can't be our masters. And so therefore, Jesus tells us, don't be anxious about your life. Because when we understand that God is sovereign, we don't necessarily have to worry about those things. Do not be anxious about your life. Specifically, he says, what you will eat or what you will drink. There's provision. Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food? And the body more than clothing. Solomon in Ecclesiastes very wisely shows us that finding meaning in life in anything as he describes it as under the sun. You have God in Ecclesiastes who is above the sun, who is above the created things, and then you have everything else that is under the sun. And to find meaning in any of those things, he calls vanity. Chasing after smoke or vapor, it's, it's impossible to catch. And Solomon tried everything. If you just look at the opening chapters of Ecclesiastes, he tried wealth and wisdom and knowledge and influence and hedonism and alcohol and sex. He tried it all, and he tried to find happiness and significance and meaning in these things. And the end result from the wisest man who ever lived was to say, it's all vanity, indicating to us that our purpose cannot be found in anything under the sun, but only by finding our purpose and our meaning, not only in, but from God himself. And so Jesus asks, is not life more than what we will eat, or what we will drink, or what we will wear? Jesus is not telling us those things don't matter. In fact, he's about to tell us that they do matter. But he wants us to start by seeing that there are things way beyond that. Because if some of us here may have 60 or 70 years ahead of us, some of us have less, some of us have a lot less. But all of us, past whatever years we have in this life, face eternity. And and you cannot put a percentage on infinity. What do I mean by that? You cannot put a percentage on how much more time there is than eternity than in this life because infinite is infinite. There is so much more to what's ahead of us than what we will wear or what we will eat or what we will drink. 
And anxiety first results from forgetting that it's God who's sovereign. It's God who's in charge. It's the Lord who gives and takes away. And no matter how much planning we do, no matter how much saving we do, no matter how much we try and find significance or meaning and security in anything under the sun, God may call us to stand before him in judgment today. We must remember that God is sovereign. And when we forget that God is in charge of all things and that God gives meaning to all things, then we are prone to anxiety. Secondly, anxiety results from forgetting that God is good. In the next verses, verses 26 through 30, uh, Jesus gives several commands here, but two of the commands, two of the imperatives are look at the birds and consider the lilies. So let's look at the birds and consider The lilies, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? In fact, I think if we were to look at things, we would see that anxiety might might decrease our lifespan rather than increasing it. To merely be anxious about what we will eat will not provide us anything to eat. To be anxious about what we will wear will not provide us with anything to wear. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. We see here that... that, um, That as we consider the the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, we not only see God's sovereignty, we not only see that he's in control, he's the one who makes the birds and makes the lilies, he's the one who's commanded a thousand cattle on a, a hill, he's the one who causes things to grow. Yes, farmers put fertilizer and seed in the ground, but they can't make things grow. We'd probably have a lot less anxious farmers if they could make things grow. But a lot of farmers are subject to whatever is going on, no matter how good of a farmer you are. But when we see that God not only cares for the lesser things, things not created in his image, like birds and lilies, how much more will he care for those of us who are made in his image? I think the problem we run into sometimes is that God clothes us with what we need for our good, that's important. He doesn't clothe us, clothe us, keep saying clothes, clothes. He doesn't clothe us in everything we want. He doesn't clothe us in everything we think we need. He clothes us in what we need for our good and with eternity in mind. He doesn't clothe us for our good or feed us for our good with merely what happens in this life in mind. And it would be a mistake to think that just because we are a believer in God, because we understand that he's sovereign, because we know that he's good, that we will then live forever. Nor that we will never have difficulty or that we might never starve or go bankrupt, or lose a job. Because God clothes us for our good, not according to our desires, with eternity in mind. 
And if we're honest, and I think this might go well to some of our prosperity brothers and sisters or people who are buying into some of that stuff, I am so glad that God has not promised perpetual healing or life or provision in this world because I'd like to make it to the next. I don't want to set my hope here. I I love my family. I love this church. I don't want to go anywhere soon. I want to be here a long time. I want to see my grandkids. But I don't want to live in this life forever. It's tough. Sometimes I'm tired and hurt and sore. (laughs) I want to make it to the next life. And that's God's perspective for us. But as we look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air that God provides for them, we see not only that he is sovereign, that he is the only worthy master, but we see that he is good. And in reality, one of the things we need to understand is that if God did not spare his only son, what good thing will he spare? Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In those moments where where you don't have what you want and you're anxious about what you need and you're tempted to think that maybe God is not providing well enough for you, remind yourself of the gospel. That while we were yet sinners, God sent his son, his only begotten son, his beloved son, As one song calls him, and I love this description, the darling of heaven, the most prized and and glorious thing in heaven, he sent him to be born as one of us, the creator of us all, to become part of creation, to live a perfect life and owe no death, yet to be put to death at the hands of hateful sinners like you and I. B.C., before Christ, before we were given hearts of flesh. In order that he might die in our place and be buried in our grave and rise again to newness of life so that by faith and not having to earn anything, he might redeem us and not only redeem us, this is one of the most amazing things to me, is that in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that he has lavished on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's not only saved us, but he's lavished every spiritual blessing on us. And not every spiritual blessing in the earthly places, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's lavished all that on us. I cannot for the life of me figure out why this sovereign and good God who planned redemption, accomplished redemption, gave me redemption, and completes my salvation upon my entrance into the next life is going to reward me? Talk about lavishing every spiritual blessing. He who plants and he who waters is nothing but God who gives the increase. I have not, me personally, as your pastor and each other in this room, look around, none of us have ever caused any spiritual growth in anyone else ever. Only God does that. He does it through us, but it's all him. He who plants and he who waters, and when Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 3, he's talking about Paul and Peter and Apollos. 
He who plants and he who waters is nothing, but only God who gives the increase. And so after being a hateful sinner who by God's grace granted you faith to believe in him and then does all the spiritual blessing in your life and everybody else's, when you die and he calls you home, he's going to reward you. And we doubt his goodness. Ah, but when we look around and we see the way that God cares for all of creation, we can be reminded not only that he's sovereign, but that he's good because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all good things? Should we not trust, even in the difficult things, his goodness? When we forget that God is good, we're prone to anxiety. And when we forget that he's sovereign, we're prone to anxiety. Thirdly, I think Jesus instructs us that anxiety results from seeking the wrong stuff. Anxiety results from seeking the wrong stuff. Verse 31. Um, If I can find 31 in my Bible. There there we go. I got new glasses on order. I'm ready for them to show up. (laughs) Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. There's that command again. Saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, now this word Gentiles is, it's the word ethnos, it's just a generic term for anybody who's not Jewish, the nations. All the nations seek after these things. It's not just people who are near to God who want these things, it's people who are far from him. In fact, the people who are the farthest from God still want something to eat and something to drink and something to wear. For the nations seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Anxiety results from seeking the wrong things. When we know that God is sovereign and we know that God is good, we can cease from our labor in trying to provide these things. Now, that doesn't mean we can quit our jobs and think that God's going to provide everything we need. As believers, I think we, more than anybody else, should have a good theology of work. This is probably why Peter says that it's worse than an unbeliever to not provide for your family. Not to be unable to provide for your family, but to be unwilling to provide for your family. I think that's an important note there. Um, But we should have a good theology of work. But, But understanding that God is sovereign and that he is good and that he provides for us, he has provided not only our jobs, but our ability to work, our ability to earn, our ability to do everything and to have anything, it frees us up to focus on what really matters, the kingdom. What do you spend your time seeking? Do you spend your time seeking your portfolio or work or bills or business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Or do you spend your time seeking The kingdom. Again, Jesus is not criticizing any of those things. He just wants us to understand that all of those things are a means to an end, not an end. We don't live to work. We work to be good kingdom citizens. Whatever your job is, I probably can can, uh, fit about half of the people in this room into two jobs. If you're a teacher or you work at the Army Corps of Engineers, it's like most of you, right? You do those things to show people what Jesus would have been like as an engineer or as an educator or whatever it is you do. 
Those, those are means. They're kingdom means to kingdom ends. And they're terrible ends in and of themselves. Seeking the wrong things leads us to anxiety, especially when we think that we are the sovereign makers of our own destinies. Fourthly, I think Jesus teaches us that anxiety results not just from seeking the wrong things, but from focusing on the wrong things. Look with me at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's not just seeking the wrong things that's the problem. It's focusing on the wrong things from the problem, or, or focusing on the wrong things that's a problem. The statement from Jesus, this statement from Jesus, is not a blanket prohibition on planning for the future. There is plenty of verses that talk about how it's wise to plan for the future. It's a prohibition against being so uh, present-focused that we're never future-focused. Being so focused on what's coming and how we're going to provide for ourselves and be the makers of our own destinies, which is kind of the American dream, that we're forgetting about kingdom things right here, right now, and where we live. When we start focusing on and not just seeking the wrong things, this leads to anxiety. We can look at the, the future and say, even though I'm going to plan for the future, God is sovereign and God is good and I can focus on things in the now too. I can be present for my family as a means of worship now instead of just working all the time. I can, I can trust God with what's going on now. I can focus on how I'm living as a kingdom citizen now and not just planning for how I'm going to retire and be able to do all the fun things that I want to do. And I'm going to admit right here and right now that for those of us who struggle with anxiety, what Jesus is saying here may seem impossible. Oh, Logan, I can see these things in the text. I can see these commands to not be anxious. But don't you think if I could just turn that off like a switch, I would? But my encouragement to you is not to try and not have fear. I'm not standing here, and I don't think Jesus is telling us to be fearless in all things. I think what he wants us to do is trade our fear. I have a video clip that's going to help us with that. We'll come back to it. It may seem a little disconnected at first, but I'll help you get there at the end. This is from Louis Giglio's How Great Is Our God. And rather than showing the whole big old long thing, I just want to show you a little section of it. But in order to do that, I want to get you caught up to where he is. He starts by mentioning Psalms 33.6, which says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of their mouth, all his hosts. In other words, God spoke, and every star and galaxy and everything that exists came into existence. We're told in Isaiah that he measures it all in the palm of his hand. But I want us to try and wrap our minds, and Louis was going to try and help us wrap our minds about how big God is. God simply said, let there be light, and there was light. Why are you not saying wow? Let's think about light for a minute. How fast does light travel? Anybody know? Per second. I hear two correct answers, 186,000 miles a second or 300,000 meters per second. Anybody know what that is in miles an hour? Fast. 671 million miles an hour. That's crazy. 
Let me put it in another term. Light can travel around the earth in one second, seven and a half times. Seven and a half times per second. So in order to understand how big the universe is, we need a really big measuring stick. So the measuring stick in the universe is a light year. Anybody know how far a light year is? 5.88 trillion miles. Now I know, some of you got a Toyota out there and you're like, mine's going to make it that far. But I don't think we understand how far a trillion is. So let me see if I can help put this in perspective. In terms of seconds. One million seconds ago was how long ago? Anybody know? 11 and a half days. One million seconds ago was 11 and a half days ago. What were you doing 11 and a half days ago? Who's sovereign? (laughs) I don't remember, but God knows. Now, in order to stretch ourselves, let's move that million seconds to a billion seconds. How long ago was a billion seconds ago? Any guesses? Who said, say that louder? That's about right. Between 31 and 32 years. A million seconds ago was 11 and a half days ago. A billion seconds was 32 years ago. How long ago was a trillion seconds ago? Anybody want to fashion a guess? It's not very often that I'm interactive in church. Y'all better start talking because take advantage of this. Normally it's just me yelling things at you, right? How long ago was 32 trillion, or 1 trillion seconds ago? 32,000 years. A million seconds ago was 11 and a half days. A trillion seconds ago was 32,000 years. So let's do some more math. 5.88 trillion seconds ago. Now remember that a light year, that's how far light travels in one year, is 5.88 trillion miles. 5.88 trillion seconds ago was 188,160 years ago. 5.88 trillion seconds ago, I'm a young earth guy, don't panic, was 188,160 years ago. And light travels 5.88 trillion uh, uh, miles per year. Anybody know how close the next nearest galaxy to us is? 25,000 light years away. So if you do 25,000 times 5.88 trillion seconds, so let's, we're just talking about the next nearest galaxy to us. 5.88 trillion seconds times 25,000 years, or 25,000. Anybody know how long ago that was? How many years ago? One, but just in seconds, the, the next nearest galaxy is to us. That would be 4,704,000 years ago. Guys, there's billions of galaxies in the world or in the universe. There might even be trillions. We don't even know. And, and the next nearest one in, in miles is just unfathomable. 
And God says, hold all that in my hand. Now, to help us understand some of this, looking mostly in our own galaxy, Louis Giglio, in this clip I want to show you, says, you know, hey, I wanted to put some of these numbers in ways that, that we could understand. If the earth were a golf ball, so he's going to compare the earth as in the size of a golf ball to some other objects. Let's watch this together. Here's a little perspective that sort of changed my life. If the earth were the size of a golf ball, okay, the sun would be 15 feet in diameter. Okay, that didn't seem to move anybody either, so let me try it a different way. Let me just try it just a different way. I thought I might need this, so I brought a golf ball, okay? So all through the evening, this is going to represent Earth, all right? So this is where we are. I need everybody in the building to look as closely as you can and find yourself, okay? And when you've found yourself, I want you to nod your head so that I know you've located you on the Earth, okay? You're nodding your head? Okay, you found yourself. If the Earth were a golf ball, the sun would be 15 feet in diameter. That's not 15 feet in diameter. Can we blow that up just a hair and maybe give them 15 feet in diameter? So here's a little perspective for you, okay? Is this working for anybody? Here we are on the Earth, and that's the sun. It's so big. It's so big, you could put... 960,000 Earths inside the sun. So if the Earth were a golf ball and the, and the sun were 15 feet in diameter, you could put 960,000 golf balls inside that 15-foot diameter sun. That's enough golf balls, by the way, because I know that seems like a big number, to fill a school bus with golf balls could fit inside the 15-foot diameter sun. It's a massive star, and it's one of hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, our cul-de-sac in the neighborhood called the cosmos that God has made. It's huge, and we're worshiping a star-breathing God tonight. But I want to tell you about the second star, okay? Because the second star absolutely wrecked my life. I heard about it when I was a high school student here in Atlanta. One of our youth leaders did a talk, and he mentioned this star. I didn't know how to talk to God for about two months after I heard about this star. It's called Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse. You can pick your pronunciation. I'm obviously going with Betelgeuse, and Betelgeuse is incredible. Here it is in the night sky. I know it doesn't look incredibly ferocious, but it's 427 light years away. So that's 427 times 5.88 trillion miles away from us right now. Draw it in a little closer with the Hubble Space Telescope, and you can start to get a little bit of the feeling of its intensity. But this is the crazy thing about Betelgeuse. Are you ready for this? Betelgeuse is twice the size. Are you ready? You think I'm going to say twice the size of the sun? Oh, no. It's twice the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun, Betelgeuse is. It's crazy. If the earth were a golf ball, <laughs> Betelgeuse would be the height of six Empire State Buildings on top of each other. No, come on. Have you seen the Empire State Building? <laughs> I mean, maybe what you're going to need to do is gather the family, get a golf ball, get some plane tickets, and fly up to New York. And you're going to go into Midtown, you're going to take your golf ball and put it on the sidewalk outside the Empire State Building. Don't worry about people thinking you're crazy. They're not even going to notice you in New York. You're going to go across the street. You're going to look up at the Empire State Building and imagine five more Empire State Buildings on top of the Empire State Building. That's Betelgeuse, and that's the earth, and somewhere you're on it. You could fit 262 trillion earths inside Betelgeuse. 
So if the earth were a golf ball, that would be enough golf balls to fill up the Superdome with golf balls 3,000 times. (laughs) When I heard that as a teenager, that stumped me right there. Because most of my praying had been advising God, correcting God, (laughs) suggesting things to God, drawing diagrams for God, reviewing things with God, counseling God. The third star, let's just, can you go a little bit bigger with me? The third star is called Musifi. Here it is in the night sky. It's that gold star to the top left. We, we have the big image of it. It's 3,000 light years away, but I just want you to see it in the, in the span of all these little glittering stars so that you know that at times when you look up at night, it is not just twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. I'm telling you what you are. What you are is intense and huge and massive and ferocious is what you are. And, and this one used to be called Herschel's Garnet Star. Check it out. If the earth were a golf ball, Musifi would be the width of two Golden Gate bridges end to end. Apparently, you're going to need to go from New York to the West Coast. Go to San Francisco with your family and your golf ball. Place your golf ball at the beginning of the Golden Gate Bridge. Go across the bay into Oakland to a high place where you can see the entire Golden Gate Bridge. Another Second Golden Golden Gate Bridge will be in your imagination. Span all the way back the two Golden Gate Bridges to the very beginning and find your golf ball over there. That's the earth and somewhere you're on it. One of the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. It's so big you could fit 2.7 quadrillion earths inside this one star. Thank you so much. Where have you been all night? Now, quadrillion we have not talked about, and I need to explain this just briefly because I don't know about you, but I do not understand the national debt or any numbers bigger than about $875.28. I get that number. Go bigger than that, I don't know. But you need to understand a quadrillion, okay, because this star is crazy big. A quadrillion, uh, let's do it this way. Everybody knows a million, right? How many of you know what a million is? You can kind of get your head around a million. Everybody? All right. You know that a billion is a thousand million and a trillion is a thousand billion and a quadrillion is a thousand trillion, right? Everybody knew that? Here's the perspective. This changed my life, right? A million seconds ago, 12 days ago. Isn't that cool? See, that saves you doing that on your little calculator at home, which I dare you to try to do when you get home tonight. But a billion seconds ago, you're thinking, oh, my goodness, if it's 12 days ago, I'm going all the way back to, like, September with you, Louie. This must be crazy, right? How about May 1975 is a billion seconds ago. You're like, whoa, that's a little bit bigger than a million. Oh, yeah. A trillion seconds ago, you're like, "Uh uh-huh, I'm on the 1800s. No. Christopher Columbus? No. 29,700 B.C. is a trillion seconds ago. A quadrillion seconds ago, 30,800,000 years ago is a quadrillion seconds ago. We're talking about a really large number, and Musifi is so big, you could put 2.7 quadrillion Earths inside this one star. But it is not even the biggest star we have found. I love science. And science has just brought us the largest star they found. It's called, are you ready for this, Canis Majoris. 
Now, I'm no linguist, but that's a cool name for the biggest star we've found so far. I think that means the big dog star, and that's exactly what it is. I bring it to you as a little bitty purple, you know, glow just to the right of center there. But Canis Majoris, oh, wow. If the earth were a golf ball, <laughs> Canis Majoris would be the height of Mount Everest. Thank you. You just saved your family plane fare from California to Kathmandu, Nepal. Almost six miles above sea level, the highest point on the planet, and I just dare you to get up there and unzip the parka and pull out your golf ball. You could fit seven quadrillion Earths inside Canis Majoris. That's enough Earths if the Earth were a golf ball to cover the entire state of Texas in golf balls 22 inches deep. You see the one you're on? Maybe this will help a little bit more. This absolutely blew my mind. Just a little journey through our solar system. Everyone knows our planets and sort of how we fit in to the story here. You see really quickly that we're not even the biggest deal in our own solar system, but as Earth comes by, you have to know tonight that we are living on a privileged planet. Anyone would tell you we're living at one of the most special places, if not the most special place in all of creation. But Neptune comes by and Saturn and then Jupiter and you're like, okay, we're not all that big, even in our own little cul-de-sac. I just noticed the blue dot fading away is not the earth. That's Neptune. The earth has gotten too small to see anymore. Sirius comes by. Little plug for satellite radio. Not the biggest star, but the brightest star that we have found so far. Pollux, which we didn't mention. Arcturus. Such a beautifully named one, Regal. But then the one that messed me up. Our third star, Musifi. Musifi's cousin, W. Sifi. Majoris. And do you know that you couldn't come up here right now with a Sharpie and make a mark on the screen that would approximate the size of our sun? You couldn't even do it. I mean, when you look at these and their relative size, we just have to put a little arrow over there that says, if you could put the sun on here, which you can't, it would go somewhere about here. And um, can you hang on that for me? And when you see this, I don't know what happens to you, but I'll tell you what happens to me. A shrinking feeling comes over me, and it's not a bad shrinking feeling. It's a good shrinking feeling. 
because sin, it has a, a way of shrinking God down in our minds and puffing us up in our own estimation. But just a glance into the universe that God has made resizes everything in a heartbeat. And you realize tonight we are worshiping an unrivaled, uncontested God of all kind of might and power and glory and awe who is, there's none like him anywhere in all of creation tonight. That didn't even take us out of our own solar system. It's just right here in, in our solar system. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He spoke and all of that comes into existence. And he measures it with the breadth of his hand. The reality is we were made for fear. Fear's a multi-billion dollar business. From amusement parks to skydiving to movies. We were made to fear. And what we need to do is understand that what Jesus is not calling us to, to do here is to not have any fear. What he's calling us to do is to not have any anxiety. And we do that by trading our fear. What's feeding our fears? It could be many things. Am I safe? Some of us are asking that. Like, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not safe. Am I well provided for? Is my family going to be well provided for? Does anyone love me? Anybody want me even to be around? Would anybody miss me if I were gone? Who in the world thinks that I'm good enough for them? I don't mind being poor, but I don't want to be unsuccessful. What's the purpose for my life? All of these things, maybe some questions more than others, are feeding our fears. And while this is not a new problem, we are unique in history. In that we have these little devices in our pockets that I think are feeding our fears. And I'm just here to tell you that the news and social media are lousy sources for fear fuel. They're lousy sources for fear fuel. We get on these little devices, we get on social media, and we compare the real self, our real selves, to others' fake selves. They're projected Selves. We watch influencers and wish we could be as rich as them or as liked as them or as influential to them. We have instant access to our financial portfolios, not to, not to mention just an inestimable amount of wasted time that keeps us from doing the things that we really want to do. So what am I asking us to do? I'm not asking us to be fearful about nothing, and neither is Jesus. I'm asking us not to be anxious by trading our fears, by trading our fear of people, by trading our fear of failure, by trading our fear of poverty, or whatever else it is we fear for a fear to God, for a fear of God. How do we do that? Well, what if in the mornings or in the evenings or both, 
we looked to God's word like we look to our phones. What if we refused to pick up our phones until we had picked up our Bibles? What if we decided to set our fears on things above before we even uh, approached anything that might bring fear on earth below? What if we said we're not going to check our bank accounts or our social media until we had looked into our spiritual accounts and our spiritual media? Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says something remarkably similar to all that we've seen today. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Ever wonder why Paul says prayer and supplication with thanksgiving? Well, if you have your outline in front of you, keep your eyes on that for about two seconds, because I think it's in prayer that we're reminded God is sovereign, that we need to approach Him and ask Him for things because we are not sovereign. It's also supplication. And in thanksgiving, we're reminded that He's good. When we pray, it is an act of of dependence upon the Lord. You are sovereign. And I need things, Lord, that can only come from your hand, and I believe that you're good, and so I'm going to thank you for the things that you've already provided. It keeps us focused on the right things. So here's my advice. Get into the Bible. Spend time in prayer. Also, spend time with the church. And I don't mean come into Sunday services. I mean in relationships, in growth groups or adult Bible fellowships or, or just relationships you've built with people in the church. Spend time with other believers and remind yourself that God is sovereign and that God is good. And if what you're sitting there thinking right now is, I don't have time for that, I would ask you this question. How much time would you have to look into your Bible and in prayer and in relationships if you didn't spend as much time looking at your phone? I hear all the time, even from myself, I'm so busy. But I think, I think that if most of us were honest, what's making us busy is not the important things. What's making us busy is the unimportant things. The tremendous amount of time we waste on stuff that not only has no eternal value, but is fueling our fears with all the wrong things. Don't think that what you need to do walking out of here today is to simply turn off a switch and say, I'm no longer going to be afraid of anything. We don't have that option. We were made for fear. We just need to choose to fear the right things. and Make sure that what's fueling our fear is holy and glorious and tremendous things. Heavenly Father, shift our fears away from ourselves and our provision and, and our ideas of our own sovereignty and autonomy and shift our fears to you. Lord, help us to not waste our time the things that don't matter. But to stand before you in fear 
Not fear that you are awful, but fear because you are so big and so holy. Let us never also forget in those fears that you are good and you are glorious. You have pursued our good in Christ. Let us be anxious for nothing, but dependent on all things, in all things, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, knowing that no matter what we go through in this life, we can trust that you are always working for our good and for your glory with eternity in mind. And may, there, may, may, may the peace of Christ guard our hearts in all of that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.